This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Increasing evidence suggests that normal brain development is impaired in uh, schizophrenia and other neuropsychiatric disorders long before the onset of symptoms. So, you know, emerging genetics and other data, intriguingly, have been implicating immune molecules and immune-related pathways, raising many questions about the underlying biology. So we recently discovered an unexpected role for our resident immune cell called microglia in this sculpting process, this pruning process. And so today I'd like to tell you about what we've learned about how it is that these cells uh, know which synapse to prune and which synapses perhaps not to prune, and how our work using mouse models are providing new biological insight into this pruning pathway and how this might go awry in schizophrenia and other neurodevelopmental disorders. Neural circuits undergo tremendous remodeling during development. We start out with an excess of synaptic connections um, and that are maintained in the mature brain. And through a developmental process called pruning or synapse elimination, Many of these extrasynaptic connections are permanently removed while others get strengthened and maintained. This, this concept of use it or lose it. So this process is, of course, regulated and uh, in, in modulated by experience. Um, and this process, refinement process, is necessary for developmental and the precise wiring of synapses in the brain. And disruptions in this process of pruning are thought to underlie neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders. Now, interestingly, there are different critical periods of pruning that happen in different parts of the brain. And as you heard earlier today, interestingly, parts of the brain, like the frontal cortex, are the last areas of the brain to prune. So the big question, of course, is what regulates this pruning process? So a major question in the field, and one that my lab has been intensely interested in, is understanding how it is that specific synapses are eliminated during development. If we can understand the mechanisms by which specific synapses get pruned or vulnerable, this might provide new insight and even therapeutic insight into how these synapses get lost in disease. So it's well established, as you heard today, that neuronal activity plays a critical role in refining synapses and synaptic connections. So we know, for example, that activity sets up a local competition. So if you look at this cartoon here, you can see that this neuron is innervated by inputs from these left and right eye inputs. If you were to, for example, label these inputs into the visual system. But over the course of development, you can see that this neuron, that some of these inputs, in this case the blue ones, get permanently removed while the red ones get strengthened and maintained. So what is the question mark that we're interested in is understanding what are the molecules that link change in activity that with a physical elimination of the blue input, but not the red one. So much of the field, of course, is focused on the neurons themselves. These are, in fact, the cells that get pruned. But emerging evidence implicate glia, the non-neuronal cells of the brain, in this pruning process. And more recent work have been implicating these cells called microglia. Now, as a card-carrying glial biologist, I have to say I've ignored these cells my entire career until very recently. And that is in part because these are the only cells not born in the brain. These are our immune cells. They actually now we know reside and are originating from the yolk sac. And they actually enter the brain very, very early in development. In fact, in a mouse, they enter the brain as early as embryonic day eight. That means they're the first non-neuronal cell in the brain. They're there when amazing growth is happening in the embryonic brain. Yet we know surprisingly little about the normal roles of these cells. Much of what we knew about them was in the context of injury and disease. 
Now, these cells make up about 10% of the cells of the brain. They tile the brain. But one of the things that makes them incredibly unique and different from any other cell is there are resident phagocytes. They're actually, by nature of the fact that they're immune cells, they're really good at eating things or phagocytosing things. But the other thing that two-photon in vivo imaging has shown us, meaning if you were to put a microscope over a mouse's brain and thin, thin their skull and use a reporter line in which all the microglia are labeled green, what you can see is that these cells are incredibly dynamic. You can see the processes are constantly moving all the time, and they're surveying the extracellular environment. And the big question we wanted to know is what is it that they're surveying? And one of the things we now appreciate that they're surveying are synapses. So if you were, to, for example, to overlay uh, neurons, in this case this neuron is um, labeled in red, you can see the processes of these microglia intimately contacting spines and axons all the time. This is happening in your brain right now. It's amazing. And one of the things we also appreciate from our work and others is that they can even sense local changes in neuronal activity. So if you manipulate that neuron and you fire it more, or if you silence it, the microglia know somehow. And that suggests that there must be some sort of signals that are being transmitted and that the, the microglia have receptors that recognize those signals. So what about the postnatal brain when the, all of this remarkable plasticity is happening? What about early in development? So that is the question we set out to address a number of years ago. And we used the developing mouse visual system as our model because so much was known about how synapses prune in this particular part of the brain. And so we used the developing retina geniculate system of the mouse where you can actually uh, label the inputs from the two eyes with dye. And then we could ask, what are the microglia doing at that circuit during the critical period of pruning? And what you can see here is that the microglia in green are intimately associated with the left and right eye axons. And the question that Dory Schaefer in my lab addressed was, are they actually engulfing or eating those synapses? And what we found is that almost every microglia we surveyed during this peak of remodeling at this point were full of inputs from the left and the right eye. They were actually in their lysosomes. And quite importantly, this process of pruning was developmentally regulated. They were doing it during these critical periods of pruning, but not later. And that suggests that there must be some signals that tell the microglia to do this and other signals that tell the microglia to stop. And we're very much interested in understanding what those signals are. So the next big question, of course, is how is it that microglia know which synapse to prune? Now, we now appreciate that it's not a random process. You know, the first hypothesis is, well, they're phagocytes. They just happen to be there, and anything that's around, they're going to eat. But we know there were critical periods, again. And so that suggested the possibility that they were recognizing synapses through some molecules. So going back to that activity-dependent um, competition model, the red and the green and the red and the blue inputs, uh, if you change activity, we know that the less active inputs are selectively eliminated or more preferentially eliminated. And again, using the visual system, we could manipulate activity in the two eyes and block activity in one eye with a drug that blocks sodium-dependent action potentials. And what we found is that microglia preferentially engulf the axons from the less active eye. And that, again, tells us this is some activity-dependent cues. So how do microglia know which synapse to prune? Well, recent work, if we go back to work I did as a postdoc in Ben Barris's lab, back then we unexpectedly uh, identified a role for a group of immune molecules called complement in this process of synaptic pruning in the mouse visual system. Now, this is a group of immune molecules traditionally associated with the innate immune system. 
And this was a surprising finding at the time, but what we essentially found is that the retinal ganglion cells, the cells, the cells that are actually getting pruned, are actually um, expressing some of these molecules like C1Q. And if you knock out C1Q and downstream C3, these mice fail to segregate into their eye-specific territories, and they remain multiply innervate even into adulthood. And so this raises this question of how is it that a group of secreted molecules that are related with the immune system could be doing something as precise as pruning? Well, going back to the immune system is where we learned a lot. Complements' main role in the immune system is to tag apoptotic cells and bacteria for rapid removal. So, for example, C1Q would bind to that bacterial cell. This would set up a proteolytic cascade that then cleaves downstream components like C4, C2, C3. And the canonical way by which that cell would get removed is it would be tagged by C3. And then a main way it gets removed is through phagocytes like macrophages in your periphery that express receptors for complement. And what we found is the complement was actually uh, tagging, if you will, um, subsets of synapses during development, and that microglia are the main cells that express this complement receptor. And that led to this hypothesis that microglia were recognizing complement tag synapses, maybe the less active synapses. And indeed, when we knocked out either the receptor on the microglia or complement itself, microglia are only about half as good as engulfing synapses. So this identifies complement as one of the main ways by which these synapses get pruned. But of course, that also tells you it's not the whole story. Now, importantly, if you fail to prune through this mechanism, this led to sustained defects in synaptic connectivity. There were too many synapses. In fact, David Prince's lab later went on in the C1Q knockout mice to show that these mice remained multiply innervated and hyperconnected, and they were more, more prone to epilepsy, at least through the adolescent period. And that, of course, raises many questions we're actively investigating related to the functional and behavioral consequences of not enough pruning or too much pruning during development. And that now brings me to this question that this is one of many mechanisms by which synapsis gets pruned. It's unexpected because it involves an immune cell and a group of these secreted immune molecules, but there's many other uh, lines of evidence now that are implicating both glia and other immune molecules like the MHC and the PRB. Now, importantly, much like the immune system, this pruning pathway we've identified seems to be tightly regulated. Microglia do not continue to do this through life. There are, there, are, there are times and places in which this is happening. They become less phagocytic as the animal matures. And a lot of these molecules, like C3, are dramatically downregulated in the healthy brain. You'd not want to have pruning continuing all the time. But what if it did? What if it kept pruning? Or what if the brakes weren't there? Or what if something turned this pathway on too much? We hypothesize that this could lead to an excess or an inappropriate pruning of either the wrong synapse or too many synapses, and this could potentially uh, lead to some of the pathobiology um, underlying neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. So this has been the question that we've been interested in for a very long time, but of course, as you know, there are not very many good animal models of schizophrenia, so it's been a very hard question to tackle. Now, indeed, several lines of evidence suggest that synaptic pruning may be altered in schizophrenia. In fact, the pruning hypothesis put forth by Feinberg 40 years ago proposed that altered cortical pruning is critical for the development of the disease. And indeed, this, this classic study by David Lewis's lab shows, very intriguingly, a loss of spines in the prefrontal cortex of some individuals with schizophrenia. And, and imaging studies have also showed cortical thinning um, in patients even before the onset of symptoms. And putting this together, the pruning hypothesis is pretty attractive. However, it's not actually been directly demonstrated. We don't yet know, for example, in these patients, were these really a pruning defect? Were these lost or never formed? 
was this cause or consequence? And again, this is very difficult to, to really tackle in, in, uh, in, in models because there really aren't any good animal models. Well, this, of course, is where human genetics can be extremely useful. And in the next few slides, I'd like to share with you new and recently published findings by my colleague Steve McCarroll and his graduate student, Ashwin Sekar, who have been using genetics to identify mechanisms and novel pathways for treatments. Now, the strongest uh, genetic signal by far has been on chromosome 6 in a region known as the MHC locus, which contains many genes, many of which relate to the immune system. But researchers had no idea which of these many genes contribute to risk. Now, this region spans hundreds of genes. Many of them, as I said, encode immune-related genes. But the um, MHC signal has really remained unexplained. And really, it doesn't follow any mathematical or statistical patterns explainable by any one known genetic variant. So what could be explaining this effect? Well, intriguingly and interestingly, within the MHC, this one of the strongest risks are associated with loci near the gene C4, complement C4, which of course is a key part of the complement cascade I talked to you about earlier. Now, Ashwin honed in on this for that and other reasons, and he was also, in Steve's lab, has been interested in this question of, of structural variability, why different people have different numbers and copies of different genes. And they developed measure, uh, methods, molecular techniques, to characterize the C4 gene structure in human DNA samples. And quite interesting, what you'll see is there are actually two C4 genes, C4A and C4B, and unlike most genes, this gene has a high degree of structural variability, variation. And what he found is that some people's genomes have extra copies of A, some have extra copies of B, some have a completely lack one or the other. And this led Ashwin to ask, could the structural form of C4 you inherit, could this be in, uh, related to the increased risk of schizophrenia? Now, the challenge was that although the Ashwins developed these techniques to measure C4A and B and the variation in different individuals, you know, how do you, get, how do you link this to schizophrenia risk, right? So Ashwin and Steve developed a novel way to map how C4 structure relates to SNPs, right, or from which genetic data was already available from tens of thousands of, of individuals. They essentially built a map to infer the four most common forms of C4 from the SNP data surrounding the gene, which essentially created molecular barcodes from the SNP patterns. And it works because humans share long genomic segments that they have inherited from common ancestors. And this map then allowed them to take advantage of SNP data in giant beta databases from around the world, which essentially turned a molecular biology problem into a big data problem. And here is what they found. Alleles of C4 appear to shape risk in proportion to their effect on C4A expression. On the left, which you'll see, is how each alleles um, here uh, relates to schizophrenia risk. And you can see those that have more C4A have a significantly increased risk. On the right is each allele's effect on C4A expression in the brain. They found that C4 gene structure could predict C4 gene activity. And notice now that those that have C4A have more C4A expression. And together, I know I'm oversimplifying the story, which has been recently published earlier this year, but for now the important thing to realize is the more C4 you make from the locus, the greater the risk of schizophrenia. Now that raises a number of questions that we're now actively investigating, um, and we're started to collaborate, Steve's lab with my lab, and also Michael Carroll's lab, to ask this question, how is it that elevated C4A 
at how does this contribute to the risk of schizophrenia? What, what is the biology underlying this, this risk factor? Now, this brought together my lab, which has been studying complement and pruning. Michael Carroll's lab is an immunologist who's been studying C4 for his career. And all of our labs together sort of joined forces in this multidisciplinary collaboration. And the first thing we did is we looked at the C4 protein. And they're actually a pretty good human antibodies for this. And we basically asked, much like we noticed in the mouse, could C4 be tagging synapses in the brain of humans? And we used tissue that was um, generated and, and given to us by the Stanley Collection. And we looked in these brains and showed that C4 was, in fact, binding to subsets of synapses in the human brain uh, in schizophrenia patients. Um, And then, moreover, uh, Heather de Rivera in Steve McCarroll's lab grew cortical neurons and then stained them after they developed with C4 antibodies and shown that C4 also binds to these synaptic structures in cortical neurons. And interestingly and importantly, C4 is actually being made by the neurons and secreted by these human neurons. So this is just early data to suggest that the protein is there and it's actually binding to synapses, at least under these conditions. But of course, the big question is, is it related to pruning? So this is when we again went back to the mouse. So we went from human to mouse in this case, and we asked, does C4 mediate synaptic pruning? And so we went back to our very classic retinogeniculate system. We used mice that were generated by Mike Carroll's lab, these C4 knockout mice. And, and Allison Bialis, who was a graduate student with me and now a postdoc with Mike, did this experiment and basically did the eye-specific segregation or pruning experiments in C4 knockout mice versus control. And the prediction would be that lacking C4 would lead to a, de- a defect or, or lack of pruning, much like we saw in the C1Q and C3 mice. And that's exactly what we saw. And interestingly, the retinal ganglion cells were expressing a lot of C4 during the peak of pruning. So this is the presynaptic neuron. And mice that lack C4 fail to segregate nicely into these eye-specific territories, which you can actually label uh, by tracing the the, uh, left and right eye with cholera toxin and then doing this thresholding to show the two eye um, interactions. So this told us that lacking C4 led to failure to prune. But the big question now moving forward is could excessive pruning could contribute to the pathobiology of schizophrenia? Could this relate to the David Lewis's study? And so that is actually what we're now together as a collaboration actively investigating. Could overactivation of complement during these critical periods of pruning contribute to wiring defects in schizophrenia? A number of other questions were raised that we're actively uh, pursuing as well. And one of the questions that, again, stemmed from beautiful work presented earlier today, could pruning also help us to understand the age of onset of schizophrenia? Might pruning become too intense and too prolonged in certain individuals? Might it expose other pre-existing vulnerabilities? And how is it that environment, like stress, impinges on uh, the genetic pathways like C4. And we're also wanting to now move from the visual system that we love so much into much more uncharted territories, which is the prefrontal cortex. And Mike and, and Mike Carroll is developing mouse models to look at overexpression of multiple copies of human C4A in mice so that we can start to address some of these questions. Now, I'm just going to end in my last slide to try to pull this together, but also to broaden this a bit more. The idea that, you know, although we've been focused on neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders, could this pruning pathway represent a more general common pathway that not only might explain synapse loss during development, but also could it actually also help to understand why synapses are vulnerable in the adult brain, especially in aging and neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's? And so indeed, multiple work now from several labs, including our own, has suggested that this very same pruning pathway that I just told you about becomes aberrantly activated very, very early in Alzheimer's disease models and other models, and that indeed, 
that this overactivation contributes to synapse loss. And very excitingly, if you block this pathway, either genetically or with antibodies or other mechanisms, you can prevent synapse loss, and in some cases, even some of the cognitive impairment. And so I'll end with this sort of positive, um, sort of hopeful last slide that suggests that maybe by understanding detailed mechanisms by which complement and microglia are selectively targeting synapses in these various models, could this help us to try to identify new targets to to particularly manipulate synapse loss in the right time and the right place? And could it also identify new biomarkers for some of these disorders? So I'll just end there by thanking a lot of individuals, uh, past and present lab members, incredible collaborators, um, and of course, um, generous funding. Thanks so much. So we're talking about brain development. And as you know, there are many ways this can get screwed up. Um, it can get screwed up by heredity, as you'll hear from, about from Matt State later. I can get screwed up by disease or environmental deprivation. And so a, way, a convenient way of conceptualizing this is that imagine that we have a number of different measures of brain maturation in different parts of the brain and so on, different processes. Uh, but these, all these processes improve with age. Um, and in the case of a developmental brain disorder, there's, it's a, a derailment, and you see an um, accumulated deficit uh, as the person matures. And the, the question that we're really interested in now is whether at the time of diagnosis, which often is in early childhood in many of these diseases or even later, can we initiate a treatment uh, that can reverse these, the consequence of the disease? So we can imagine um, conceptually three potential outcomes. And the most dismal outcome is the one illustrated on the top, and that is, is that I can only intervene in, during an early critical period. And then if you miss that period, maybe the damage has already been done in utero prior to birth, it's just too late to initiate a treatment. So that's the most pessimistic point of view. The most optimistic point of view is, is that, indeed, we can apply our great knowledge of neurobiology to come up with good treatments that may actually reverse the course of the disease and actually restore normal function. And probably a, a realistic possibility is the one in the middle, the hopeful scenario that we can initiate treatments that may prevent further decline. So uh, the work in my lab uh, is addressing these questions in different ways. Uh, and one of the ways we look at is a genetically defined disease called Fragile X. We've done a lot of work on that. But we're also interested in the consequences of environmental deprivation uh, particularly a disease called amblyopia, and I'm going to tell you about that work today. So amblyopia is a not uncommon visual disability. It affects approximately 3% of the world population, uh, and it's more prevalent in, in um, nations where there's poor pre, uh, early childhood sc uh, pediatric screening. It's just a consequence of poor quality vision during infancy and early childhood. And that poor quality could arise because the eyes aren't properly aligned at birth, so the child is seeing double. Uh, it can arise because there's a dense cataract in one eye or a droopy eyelid. Uh, or it could arise because there are different refractive indices in the two eyes, so you can't focus an image on both eyes at the same time. The consequence is the same, and it is usually a fairly severe visual impairment in one of the eyes. Now, if that... If that um, optical abnormality or what have you is corrected uh, very early in life, there's a good chance to see some recovery of function. But if that correction is, occurs later, there's a very dismal prognosis. So 
Luckily, um, there are animal models for this amblyopia. In fact, every uh, mammal with binocular vision will show a susceptibility to poor quality visual experience during early life. Uh, and I'm going to show you a cat video. It's always popular. Um, <laughs> to uh, illustrate the visual disability uh, in a kitten. Uh, so what we're looking at is, uh, that's the top of a kitten's head. Um, and this kitten had been deprived of normal vision through one eye for only seven days uh, at about the fourth postnatal week. And then that eye was unpatched. And then now we're going to measure the consequences. And first, we're going to measure the vision through the good eye. Uh, and the way we do this, and I say we, it'd be very liberal. This is actually work done by Donald Mitchell, a collaborator of mine at Dalhousie University. And Don's been studying this for many, many years. But he puts the animal in a, in a box on a jack stand, and the animal learns to jump down onto a placard with the vertical stripes. So the animal's reporting whether it can resolve the stripes by choosing the correct placard to jump on, and it gets a pat on the back and a little bit of kitten food. And they're very happy to, to uh, perform this task. So first we're going to look at a kitten performing the task um, through the good eye, the eye that had not been deprived. And, you can see they're quite keen to do this. They jump down, they find the right stripes, get a little liverwurst. And they can make the stripes closer and closer to get a measurement of visual acuity. So this is a way that they can determine how well the animal can resolve visual stimuli the same way you would at the, at the eye doctor. So now this is the same animal, but now we're going to do the same, this test through the eye that had been only temporarily deprived of vision, only for seven days. And what you're going to see is this is a very severe visual impairment. So the, the good eye is being occluded with a black contact lens, so the kitten's forced to look through its lazy eye, and you can see that uh, it's having great difficulty in, in even seeing a, the stripes versus the empty chamber there. So it's a significant visual disability, and as I said, this is a type of dis disability that affects up to 3% of the human population. The visual disability will persist even when the eye has been reopened and the animal is allowed to see through both eyes. And um, this is shown in, in this graph where we're, this is now a plot of the visual acuity, the ability of the animal to resolve those stripes, as a function of time after the eye has been opened, the bad eye has been opened. And the green, the green symbols show vision through the non-deprived eye, and the blue symbols show the vision through the deprived eye. So you can see that although there is some, a slight recovery, there's not much, and there's a, a actually fairly severe visual disability compared to the vision through the good eye. So this uh, model of temporary monocular deprivation has been around for over 50 years, and many others, probably maybe hundreds of others, of other scientists have been studying this very intensively, and we've actually learned quite a bit about the mechanisms that serve this um, disruption in the cortex. And yet, our, our work has had very little impact on how the clinical management of amblyopia. So the question that I want to address today is, can the understanding of the synaptic basis for amblyopia suggest novel treatments to promote recovery that are better than current standard of care? And the simple answer to that question is yes. Here it is. So these are kittens that were uh, visually impaired in one eye, stable visual disability, and a treatment was initiated based on principles of synaptic plasticity uh, at this age. This is now two months after the, the uh, deprived eye had been opened, so about three months of age. 
you can see that there's a very rapid recovery of vision through the deprived eye. So essentially curing this form of, of visual disability. So hopefully I've gotten your attention with this amazing result, and now I'm going to unpack it for you and tell you what that magical treatment was. But to do so, I need to walk you through a little bit of background, which is um, the uh, visual system um, of ma mammals with two eyes, uh, often kittens or mice or monkeys. And the visual pathway originates with these retinal ganglion cells in the two eyes. They project centrally. They relay in the lateral geniculate nucleus, or LGN. And then they go on and synapse on neurons and primary visual cortex. So when, when visual experience is normal through the two eyes, those connections mature, and we, we, we have binocular vision. When there's an imbalance in vision through the two eyes, it sets in motion a, a stereotype choreography of synaptic changes where the inputs carrying information from the deprived eye are weakened and the inputs carrying information by the open eye are, are eventually show a compensatory strengthening. So we can measure these consequences of that anatomical plasticity uh, functionally as well. So we can put a microelectrode in primary visual cortex, and we can record the activity that's evoked by stimulation of the right eye or the left eye. So that's, I just direct your attention to these histograms on the top. So this is now the number of nerve impulses uh, triggered in response to stimulation of the right eye and the left eye prior to any deprivation. So you can see this is a neuron that responds happily to stimulation of both eyes. In fact, there's a slight ocular dominance, slight preference for stimulation of the right eye. And now this right eyelid is closed, and then the neuron is recorded again later. And what you can see is it's essentially lost all responsiveness to stimulation of the eye that had been deprived. So no wonder the kittens can't see. We've disconnected the cortex uh, from that eye. So I mentioned that um, it is possible to correct uh, these visual disabilities if you intervene early enough. And the tr current standard of care is a therapy called patching therapy. And essentially that uh, comprises putting a patch, usually an opaque patch, over the strong eye to force the weak eye to uh, function. And that can be successful. So when you patch the strong eye, you'll get a recovery of vision through the weak eye. Now, there are a number of limitations of this approach, uh, not least of which is compliance, because children don't like to have these eye patches. Um, but also, there is uh, the gains in the um, amblyopic eye often come at the expense of the good eye, because you're now patching it. Uh, there's little improvement in binocular vision, so no stereopsis. And again, it's only effective if you initiate this treatment prior to age eight or so. So what do we, let's get under the hood and see what happens during reverse patching. Well, uh, so again, we're recording now from a single neuron in primary visual cortex. Uh, this is the situation, we're going to start with a situation after a period of monocular deprivation. So we have a neuron here that's responding only to the left eye. There's no response to the right eye. That's because we've, we've already performed a monocular deprivation. So the kitten is amblyopic. And now what we're going to do is we're going to patch the strong eye and we're going to open the weak eye and see what happens. And what happens is, is that initially you get a loss of responsiveness to the newly deprived eye. But with time, you start to gain a gain of responsiveness in the, um, non the formerly deprived, now seeing eye. So this is good. We can get, a, we can get a, a recovery, but it's not ideal. It's not ideal because it actually is a zero-sum game. So the gains that we're getting in this weak, lazy eye are coming at the expense of the strong eye. 
And as in the case of patching therapy in uh, humans, uh, this reverse patching in the animal models also shows a sensitive period. So this is a classic study done by Blakemore and Van Sliders in cats showing that the ability to reverse this ocular dominance shift or this uh, change in physiology in the cortex diminishes greatly with age, so that by eight weeks of age, it's very difficult to get a reversal, and it's essentially gone by 12 to 14 weeks of age. And the same sort of pattern is seen in, in any species that's been looked at. So uh, there are problems with patching therapy, but these limitations notwithstanding, they do demonstrate that we can rejuvenate weak synapses. We can rejuvenate these inputs that previously were incapable of evoking a response. So what we'd like to do is understand that process a little bit better so that maybe we could devise a better way to restore function. So to understand where we're going to go, I have to introduce some of the simple principles of synaptic plasticity. So the excitatory synapses in our brains use glutamate as a neurotransmitter. Glutamate activates two types of postsynaptic glutamate receptor, glutamate-gated ion channels. Uh, the AMPA receptor mediates fast synaptic transmission, and the NMDA receptor uh, is an important trigger for modification of synaptic strength. And so what we've learned over 30 or 40 years of intensive effort uh, is that we can indeed modify the strength of synaptic transmission, and we do so by activating NMDA receptors. Uh, so strong activation of NMDA receptors will make a synapse stronger, and that's a phenomenon we call long-term potentiation, or LTP. Uh, modest activation of NMDA receptors leads to the reversed form of plasticity called long-term depression, or LTD. And the NMDA receptor has an unusual property that's actually very sensitive to how well correlated pre- and postsynaptic neurons are. So strongly correlated activity strongly activates NMDA receptors, and you're more likely to get a synaptic strengthening. So this is one fundamental feature of what we call bidirectional synaptic plasticity. Another fundamental feature is, is that that learning rule actually is also modifiable. So if uh, neurons are quieted for a long period of time, there's a shift in this function. So, for example, the function will shift to the left. If we put animals in the dark, for instance, this function will shift to the left in visual cortex, which has the net effect of making the potentiation more readily um, observed and making depression more difficult. So we call that property uh, metaplasticity. It's a type of homeostatic plasticity to make sure the network of synapses uh, keeps within a dynamic range. So now how are we going to explain this uh, effective reverse patching? So let's go through this again. We have a situation where we have a, a neuron that responds only to stimulation of one eye. This eye has been functionally disconnected. And now we're going to close that strong eye. And the first thing that happens is that the neuron stops, loses responsiveness to the newly deprived eye. So this is believed to be a consequence of these mechanisms of long-term depression. In fact, there's very, very good evidence to support that statement. So this initial loss of responsiveness is due to a diminution of the strength of excitatory synaptic transmission from inputs carrying information by that eye. But something else has happened as well. The other thing that's happened is imagine we have a situation where the seeing eye is not strong enough to evoke a response and the strong eye is not seeing. So as a consequence, the activity in the cortex falls, and this is the condition required to induce this metaplasticity. So 
eventually what we see is, is that the change in the rules of the game, so this function will slide to the left, and this will allow the recovery of the uh, formerly deprived, now seeing eye. It can recover because it's got reasonable, it's reasonably correlated activity. It was very weak, and now this weak activity is enough to start to gain a toehold and drive those synapses up. So I mentioned that there are issues with patch therapy. Um, it's, it's not ideal, and the question is, can we use these principles of metaplasticity to restore function without resorting to patching? Well, there is good reason to believe that that's the case. Um, first, there have been an, a couple of studies done um, by others where they've put animals into complete darkness after a period of monocular deprivation. Um, so literally a, one or two weeks of complete darkness, uh, and then the animals are brought back into the light with both eyes open, and what they've observed is they can get a recovery of vision. It could be quite dramatic. But it does require weeks of darkness, and you, that darkness cannot be interrupted even temporarily by light exposure. So we wondered if we could do better, again, based on what we knew about this metaplasticity property. So the experiment that we did was to use an anesthetic and inject both eyes uh, with this anesthetic. It's an anesthetic called tetrodotoxin. But really, any, any drug that would block sodium-dependent action potentials would work. So essentially what we're doing is, in essence, we're rebooting the visual system. We are turning it off, and then we're going to let it turn back on again. So the, the, the rationale here is, is that we put this tetrodotoxin into the eyes, and we block all impulse activity. This curve slides to the left, and this will promote the recovery of the uh, weak input. So what happens? Well, I wouldn't be telling you this if it didn't work. Uh, works beautifully. It works amazingly, amazingly. So uh, this is work from mice here, so I have to introduce a little bit. Essentially, the only thing that matters is that the blue bars represent the strength of one eye, the, the eye on the opposite side of the head, the contralateral eye, and the yellow bar represents the strength of the, of the other eye, the ipsilateral eye. So if you don't do anything to a mouse, uh, these, the heights of these bars wax and wane, but they don't change too much. If you monocularly deprive a mouse, as we've done here, it goes from here where we've closed the blue eye, so this response is depressed, and it stays depressed. Okay, it never recovers spontaneously. But if we follow that monocular deprivation with this bilateral injection of tetrodotoxin to turn the eyes off, when the TTX wears off, we see a rapid recovery of vision through the deprived eye. So this is the magic treatment that we did in the kittens. Um, so in these animals, uh, tetrodotoxin was injected bilaterally. In this case, we did two uh, injections into both eyes because we didn't want to take any chances. But you can see which is a really remarkable recovery of, of sight. And then this is uh, an example of one experiment where initially we failed. Uh, we failed because the injections weren't successful and they didn't block the pupillary light reflex, so we knew we hadn't blocked impulse activity. Um, we were disappointed. Animal uh, kept maturing. We wondered what we were going to do with it. We said, oh, let's try it again. So we tried it again. Uh, now at the ripe old age of five months, a uh, single injection of TTX, and again, we saw this great recovery. So we're excited about that because it's a brief manipulation, even very late. And just to compare, this is five months of age or 20 weeks, and you can see that's way beyond what's possible with reverse occlusion. So just to wrap up. 
We're seeing recovery uh, at older ages than it's possible with reverse occlusion. The recovery is very rapid, occurs over the course of a week. It's 100% complete. And the recovery of the weak eye does not come at the expense of the strong eye. So, of course, what we want to know now is precisely how did this retinal activation work? And can we, can we actually translate this knowledge into better therapies for human amblyopia? And with that, I'll just thank the people who did all the work and our funding sources. Um, I am going to talk today about um, identifying... Uh, the genetic underpinning of autism spectrum disorders, and then really want to talk about that as really the foundation for beginning to understand not only the biology of these disorders, uh, but also something about this uh, complex interplay of uh, environment and biology that you've been hearing about um, throughout much of the day today. I'm going to start by uh, just showing a video of a child with autism. Don't worry about the sound. In fact, it's very hard to hear, but not having the sound hopefully um, also makes a point. Uh, you don't need clinical training, I don't think, to be able to identify really what is the sine qua non of the diagnosis of autism, which is a fundamental impairment in reciprocal social communication. So I think you can tell that this is um, a, a young man who uh, is, is uh, certainly uh, not typically developed in that regard. Um, in a moment, he'll sit down um, and start using a picture board to communicate and um, has uh, very little uh, useful language, which is also uh, a hallmark of those uh, social communication deficits that is uh, particularly um, uh, prevalent in, in, uh, in more severe uh, cases of autism. Also, at the beginning, you saw, I, I believe, that um, he uh, flapped his hands in the second domain for the diagnosis. Is, uh, th those kinds of repetitive behaviors are highly restricted interests. So um, understanding the genetics of this syndrome, despite the fact that we've known for several decades that um, uh, autism uh, is, uh, does run in families, uh, has been extremely difficult. We spent much of the early part of my career spending more time arguing about why we couldn't get the same answer than we did in being able to lay a strong foundation for understanding the neurobiology of the disorder. Um, I want to talk to you about um, the strategy that my lab chose uh, to pursue, a number of other labs as well, um, which was um, uh, understanding that there was this very uh, complex set of, um, of uh, levels of analysis potentially to uh, try to address from molecule all the way to complex behavior, that our thought was that if there was a possibility that we could go from the complex behavior directly to the molecule, meaning to get us directly to DNA, that that could be valuable in laying sort of the foundation then to pull on that thread to be able to get to more and more complex levels of analysis. Um, and really the whole idea behind this, I, I don't think I could have had a day that had a better setup for sort of laying out why this was a hypothesis, but the notion that if we could understand the detailed biology of autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders, that this could give us the kind of opportunities that you've heard about today with regard to amblyopia and, and neurodegenerative disorders, et cetera. So um, there are many reasons why we thought that this might be a reasonable strategy. Among them uh, is that in some ways we had the sense that this was really the simplest approach to try to begin to understand something as complex as autism. Not, not a trivial undertaking to try to find which individual changes among three billion bases in the human genome present in every cell um, that has a nucleus in the nucleus. Um, but um, orders of magnitude less complex in, in my view when I was starting my lab than the hundred billion neurons that make up uh, the human central nervous system and uh, orders of magnitude still less complex uh, than trying to understand uh, the hundred trillion uh, connections. And you've heard a lot about synapses today. Um, so um, we decided to take this approach. You could call it really a reductionist approach um, to uh, trying to, as I said, get at the simplest part of the problem and then move forward. 
We did that um, starting about 10 years ago uh, by focusing on something called de novo mutation. So um, when people think about genetics, they often uh, sort of think about that as synonymous with the transmission of genetic risk from one generation to the other, from grandparents to parents to children. But it's also the case that a small amount of genetic variation is introduced into the genome in each generation. So um, there is quite a bit of, of variation in the human genome. If you turn to your left or your right, you are 99% identical to the person sitting next to you, the level of your genome. So I hope you got a good seat. Um, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed mine. Um, uh, um, but um, within that, so um, even though it's about 1%, that's still 30 million differences that you have between you and the person sitting next to you. Um, we were interested in de novo mutation for several reasons. So the first is that um, if a de novo, if a new mutation, which is introduced at a low rate into the genome in every generation, uh, is connected with something like a neurodevelopmental disorder, to the extent um, that it has a significant effect over time, uh, it will be eliminated from the genome by natural selection. Um, but for de novo mutation, natural selection has very little time to act. So unless the mutation is lethal in the generation in which it's present, you can have genetic variations, mutations that have very large biological effects. And still, if you can find the de novo mutation, uh, you, um, you're able then to, uh, to be able to um, use that as a starting point. And if you're interested in genetics as a way to understand neurobiology, starting with something that has many, many fold increase in risk versus a small percentage increase in risk seemed like a smart strategy. Um, this also comported with a clinical observation for many years that many families come to clinical attention. I'm a child psychiatrist and can tell you that it was uh, observations in our clinic as well, that a substantial portion come in where there doesn't appear to be any strong family history, uh, suggesting that those families in particular might have been vulnerable to these spontaneous new mutations, de novo mutations contributing to their disorder. And then there were two key papers in, in 2007 and 2008. Uh, I think the, the most... Um, uh, uh, um, uh, relevant one and truly a seminal paper was uh, the lead author was Jonathan Sabat, who's a professor here at UCSD, showing that de novo mutations in fine chromosomal structure were much more frequent in kids with autism if they came from a family without a family history uh, than any other group that they compared to. We then got very lucky and were able to study a, a group of kids in the Simon Simplex collection um, that was designed to try to help us promote these kinds of mutations. And, and this diagram shows really the experimental design, which is to find families that look essentially like they'd been hit by a bolt of lightning, where the, the blue represents unaffected and red affected. So to have unaffected parents, and if there were siblings, to have them be unaffected as well, um, and only be able to, to uh, have a single affected member in the family in order to be able to... Uh, to participate in this cohort. And then um, what we were able to do then is to take a look and compare the parents to the children. Um, and anything that was present in the children that was not present in the parents was either a mistake or a de novo mutation. Um, and the second thing that we were able to do is then to compare affected children to their unaffected siblings. So a beautifully controlled experiment that allows us to ask the same question again that Jonathan and uh, uh, Sabat and Mike Wiggler asked. I, I want to give you two other uh, kind of senses about why de novo mutation can be so powerful to the extent that it contributes to disease. The first is that I've already told you that there are about 30 million differences between you and the person sitting next to you, so you can think about that as a forest of genetic variation. Um, and in fact, with de novo mutation, I love this picture because it really represents an, about one de novo mutation per generation in the human genome, so out of um, uh, in the section of that that codes for genes. So it gives you very strong signal-to-noise properties. You can really identify where that is, and you're counting to very low numbers. 
and since I, like Jay, apparently mathematically challenged, counting to one is something that we've been able to do in the laboratory. Um, <laughs> Now, the second thing is that this is a big, a large area, this forest, and, and we have very few events. So we could also leverage um, an approach to statistical analysis that allowed us really just to ask the question, if we saw a kind of de novo mutation, a particular spot in the genome, if we looked at an unrelated child, could we see lightning striking twice? So we put those two things together, this um, good signal-to-noise ratio and this idea of recurrence of these very rare spontaneous events in order to identify genes contributing to ASD. One of the, the first findings that we published in 2011 first replicated uh, what uh, Jonathan Sabot and Mike Wiggler had done with about 10 times the uh, sample size, which was an enormous relief, I imagine, to the entire field, given that psychiatric genetics had spent many years, as I said, arguing with each other about why we could not replicate. So replication was a kind of pop-the-cork moment. Um, but this finding in particular, in addition to that, we were able to identify a new small region of the genome contributing to ASD, um, autism spectrum disorders, um, and that was on chromosome 7. Um, and we found that if you had an extra copy of the small number of genes within this chromosomal region, there are about 25 that reside there, uh, that you would have classically defined autism and look very much like the child that I showed you in the first video. Um, we also knew, though, that there was another syndrome that had previously been described that, it, that was the consequence of the loss of exactly the same gene. So autism, there were uh, additional copies, and in this case there was a loss. And I'm going to show you another video um, here we do need sound. Hello, buddy. How are you? I'm really watching the ABC News. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What's your favorite color and what's your favorite TV show? Kids love to ask questions, but not as much as these kids. My favorite color is blue. I have met Barney the dinosaur. Yeah. I live in New York City. Do you have any sons or daughters? I do. Wow. I have two daughters and a son. Wow. And kids love to make friends, but not like these kids. What nationality are you? I'm Italian. Oh. How are you, buddy? <laughs> So um, that is Williams syndrome, um, and fascinating syndrome. I spend the rest of the talk here and probably several others telling you about um, how interesting that syndrome is. But for the sake of, of this talk, what I wanted to point out is that, again, you don't need any clinical training to see the profound differences in the interest in social relations, in affiliation in this group of kids versus kind of the, the example that I gave you of the first child where the core deficit is a failure of that um, uh, reciprocal social communication. So um, when when you think about this, so what I, we laid out was a hypothesis that you could go from a complex behavioral phenotype, go to the genome, and then work your way back. And I think it would be reasonable to be skeptical about that's a long distance between a change in a small section of the genome going through uh, molecules, cells, circuits, behavior, and, and brain, and, and, and invoking additional things like environment and experience. But this gave us, um, I think, a, a shot in the arm about thinking that at least in some cases this was a viable approach. Because if you do the thought experiment, if we could understand what it was about these 25 genes in the genome or the subset of them that were contributing to this difference, that you're looking at a powerful rheostat of something as complex as social affiliation. 
Um, as genomic tools advance, we're able to move from looking at segments of the genome, this fine structure of chromosomes, to doing the same experiments again at much higher resolution now to the single letter of the genetic code in all the genes of the genome simultaneously. And what you're looking at here is a summary from 2015 that's giving you now a picture of all of the reliable genes that we've been able to identify that are contributing to autism spectrum disorders, again, with a substantial portion of these um, conferring many, many-fold increases in risk. They're individually rare in people, but in the person that they exist, they are having profound biological effects. This is Stefan Sanders on the right. He was a postdoc at the time in the lab, now a junior faculty at UCSF, a brilliant young guy who um, uh, led uh, several of the studies that, that led to this kind of summary statement that includes not only our work, but work of laboratories around the world um, that have uh, replicated both the initial observations around uh, de novo uh, um, uh, mutations as well as the specific genes shown here. So where does that leave us? Now, we've gone from uh, a, a situation where, at least for the first 15 years of my career, um, it was like wandering in the desert. I would have you know, given anything to find a single gene associated with autism spectrum disorder that I felt I, I knew reliably. And now we have a series of genes. There are 60 uh, genes and, and, um, that were represented in that picture, as well as a, um, a number of chromosomal segments. Um, so, and that reflects only a small number of the genes that we we now predict are going to be found that um, uh, can contribute to autism spectrum disorders. Um, this is a version of a diagram, actually, that uh, uh, we put together with Pat Levitt before the advances uh, that I've described for you, because they have been uh, fairly recent. And at the time was aspirational, but it's turned out to be um, actually, I think, a pretty good representation of sort of where we are and, and where we're heading. So the diagram is supposed to show the same kind of progression where we have genes, and there are many of them. Uh, distributed across the genome uh, that then underlie some biology. And we hypothesized before we found the genes that they would not be randomly associated, but in fact would point us to specific biological processes, and that has turned out to be the case. One of the strongest signals that we have is um, that these mutations preferentially target genes that are involved in synaptic formation and function. There are other broad areas of biology, but it's turned out, you've heard all day about the importance of synapses, and it turns out that they are quite important for autism as well. Um, that some Somehow that's mediated uh, through the developing brain. This is a picture of the brain developing uh, in a circle from uh, embryo all the way to the adult brain. Just to remind you that while we found some biology, that that biology is being expressed across development um, uh, in the brain and that um, we don't go directly from genes to behavior. And that we know that we're now able to find genes that um, dramatically increase the risk for autism. There's some additional complexities here, and one of them that we found right off the bat is that while we were finding genes that were very reliably associated with dramatically increased risk for autism, our colleagues studying intellectual disability, epilepsy, and schizophrenia were finding some of the exact same regions of the genome. So this presents a, 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 an important but, I think, um, uh, not only challenging but, um, but optimistic kind of um, uh, uh, um, concept because uh, you've heard about this notion of um, of uh, the, the potential plasticity. And what this tells us is that even if you have a gene that it per, it profoundly increases the risk for autism, that for some people you see nothing for the first 15, 18 years of life, uh, suggesting that uh, genes are not fate, uh, even ones that carry large risk, but somehow that all the things that we're talking about today 
could potentially be important in determining how these play out over time. And this diagram shows at the bottom there that there are a variety of things that you could um, hypothesize uh, might be involved in that epigenetics uh, involvement of the um, kind of uh, cellular molecular environment, other kind of genetic variants that have smaller effect but help dictate uh, how these large genetic risks play out and and potentially for some uh, individuals luck. But it does also open up this notion of potential plasticity. Um, Something I also, you know, Mark did a beautiful job of laying out the three hypotheses about the, you know, development of neurodevelopmental disorders, the the pessimistic one and and the optimistic one. And I think uh, it's important to keep that in mind, particularly in autism, something where there's a large genetic complement and you see this playing out in very early life. It is also the case that despite the fact that we are not anywhere uh, near satisfied with the treatments that we're able to provide, that kids do improve with early intervention. Again, I think pointing to the fact that genes are not fate and that beginning to use this body of knowledge to understand how this genetic risk plays out over time, uh, leading either to multiple disorders or not, uh, or improving over time is something that um, is, uh, is quite important. So I think where, where we end is that, um, uh, this talk at least, but hopefully not in the field, um, is that um, on the left side of the diagram uh, that, that we now have made significant progress, uh, not only in understanding the genetic substrate, but beginning to define what the biological processes are, and, and many labs using the kinds of tools that you heard about all day today are, are now beginning to place that in a developmental context to understand the timing uh, of, uh, of the genetic risk and how that's playing out. Uh, and I think that leads to, um, uh, we hope, uh, the substrate to begin to uh, attack these problems in the way that you've been hearing all day, that we're attacking other uh, complex disorders where uh, the underlying biology has been more clear than it's been uh, for complex neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, and so I want to end by, um, as with everyone else, uh, you know, I get to stand up and give the talk and have a list of people who did all the heavy lifting and particularly want to point to Stefan Sanders for the remarkable work that he's done on gene discovery and my collaborators um, uh, really around the country um, who've made this work possible um, and uh, can't end without also thanking um, not only the funders but most importantly the families that contributed to the uh, Simon Simplex collection that we were able to study uh, so productively for the last decade or so. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.